Hello to all the Elite Rugby Banter listeners. I'm very sorry that I'm not on this week's podcast. I promise it's not just because I'm in mourning after the Stormers' loss. I've got a serious medically diagnosed case of man flu, but uh, I have all confidence that Phil and Ant will give you a quality recap. Take it away, gents. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Elite Rugby Banter. Um, as you would have heard in the intro, unfortunately, we've lost a man. Um, I'm very speculative of whether it is indeed man flu or if it is just proper, proper mourning. I mean, I think he was sad enough that he wasn't, Andrew wasn't able to be at the game. Um, but then to see the videos of all the Monster Men supporting and cheering thereafter, I think he's just just sad about that. But I am joined by Phil. Um, so Phil, are you ready to, to make up for an absence? Of a pod, pod member. Yeah, I'm here and I'm ready. We may be a man down, but we are good and ready to go. Um, we were both at the game, I believe, on Saturday. So, you know, sort of first-hand experience of the game. We can talk about it and it sounds good. Yeah, I think there is quite a lot to cover. Um, you know, last time we chatted, we were just heading into the USC's quarterfinals. I think we just passed the Champions Cup quarterfinals. First Springbok squad's been announced. Super Rugby is clicking along. Premiership's wrapped up. So there's lots of things happening. Um, so I think without further ado, let's get going. Um, obviously, the biggest news from a South African perspective is Munster claiming a nail-biting uh, victory at the death over the Stormers. Um, yeah, you were in the stadium, as was I. What was your experience of the game? From a, Let's focus on the fan atmosphere and kind of uh, spectator view, and then we can actually talk about the rugby itself. Yeah, so obviously uh, sold out stadium, the Cape Town Stadium in Greenpoint, 56 plus thousand it was in the end. Um, and it was a great experience, I think. The, the Despite the result, the fans made the most of it. And other than the field, I think, is probably the biggest negative of the whole <laughs> you know stadium situation. Um, other than that, I think it was really, really good. Um, and from a fan's perspective and from a relative neutral, I think I, well, I definitely would have liked to see the Stormers win, but not as a diehard Stormers fan. I had a really good time and I enjoyed it. What about you as a Sharks fan? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I was actually with the people that I watched with, none of which are significant rugby fans that are coming along for the vibe. Um, sure. So I think that's probably my biggest takeaway. And it has been since rugby's really come back post-COVID is, you know, there's just... Uh, a, a new, uh, like a renewed um, energy to watching rugby, but it's a lot more, I think, social than it is rugby focused. Sure. Um, uh, people are going through because it's a good day out, and it objectively is a great day out. Um, there are people hitting the bars early in the day, they're finding places to buy the options, but they're not actually there for the rugby. But I think that doesn't really matter because the, the fans are having a good time. There's a lot of noise, the, the stadium's vibey, um, and I'm sure all the Irish boys that came out you know, would say the same kind of thing. Um, by all accounts, they were very, very well um, well received at our bars and drained every drop of Guinness we had. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I read earlier in the week that up to 5,000, I think we all read that up to 5,000 Irish Monster fans were there. But I don't know if it was quite that much, but there were definitely a significant portion, um, like pockets in the stadium, you know, which was nice to see. And obviously on the TV and everything, they got a lot of exposure. So... 
they, I'm sure they really enjoyed themselves and the result just made it... I think even if they didn't win, they would have loved coming out here and enjoying the weekend in Cape Town, especially given the weather. The weather was also playing its part and was amazing. And so the win was just the cherry on the top, I think. Yeah, I mean, considering it was... The predictions a week out were looking very, very grim. I mean, it turned around. It was a stunning Saturday, Sunday. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. So hopefully they did manage to spend a significant amount of euros out here, um, boost our economy a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's by all accounts, they, they didn't have a great time. And you know, I mean, I, you, you, as you said, you could see just huge swathes of red in certain parts of the stadium. So they definitely made their, their voice felt. Um, I did notice when the Mexican wave was coming around, when the Stormers were still in the lead, a big section of the stands that just didn't stand up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the Mexican wave is a weird thing. I mean, South Africans love it. And obviously at like events like Sevens, it's a big thing. But I think the more traditional rug, rugby populations, it's something you like frown upon where it's like, let's look at the rugby. Mexican wave is more of like a party atmosphere, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I completely agree. <laughs> I mean... Uh, yeah, but I think again, that's the the, the vibe the Captain Stadium particularly is kind of going for nowadays. Is it's well, maybe not intentionally. It's just that's the kind of clientele that it's attracting. Is you know people are coming out for the fun for the day out rather than being diehard Stormers supporters. I mean, obviously are those, but I feel like they're 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 a smaller portion. Um, and, you know, but that's it's all part of a successful rugby um, atmosphere, in my opinion. You know, you've got a you're not going to have fifty five thousand diehard Stormers fans. But you are going to get 50,000 people that are keen to come out for a good time. And at 50 Rand, 100 Rand a ticket, um, you, know, you, you can actually make that happen. Um, you know, I had a, huge, a large number of friends that this was their first ever rugby game they went to watch. Uh, you know, it's just really cool. And they're like, that was awesome. That's so much fun. We're going to come back um, next time, next year. We're already yeah. kind of counting down to October. <laughs> yeah, um, by then, ho- hopefully we'll, we'll have a stadium and, and then a pitch that you can actually scrum on. Yeah, I mean, it can't get too much worse, like we were saying. Yeah, so I mean, there is, before we actually get into the game, I'm just touching on that, there's one more game for the Stormers or Western Province at home. Um, They host the Sharks next weekend in the Curry Cup, and then the Stormers aren't going to make the top two in Curry Cup, so um, the stadium basically will be free for the next couple of months before USC kicks off again for them to lay down the new pitch. Um, they're putting in a hybrid one, which I think is the same as they have in Twickenham. You know, it's not the full injury-causing um, Astro. Astro. Yeah, pretty much. It's. I, I, I don't know exactly what the hybrid feels like, but I would imagine it's a lot safer and a lot better than the Astro. Like playing on an Astro, playing rugby on Astro just sounds like an accident waiting to happen. Oh, it sounds like a And by all accounts, the players hate it as well. I mean, the injury stats speak for themselves. For sure. Um, yeah, and we were saying earlier they may play that Curry Cup game in Athlone at the Athlone Stadium where they played this past weekend. So perhaps they'll get an early start on the stadium, but we'll see in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, but back to the rugby. Um, Thomas Munsters, what was your takeaways? Your main takeaways from the game? Uh, I think um, again from a Stormers perspective, just hugely frustrating. There were, I think, at the end of the game. Munster definitely deserved the win and they played well enough, but there were opportunities that the Stormers just didn't take. And as a home time, uh, home side in a position where you're 14-12 up and you've got sustained pressure on their line and not being able to convert, whether that's through scoring tries or whether it's through kicking your penalties, obviously Lebok missed a, a couple of kicks which could have been crucial. Um, 
but those missed opportunities I think will really really hurt and yeah I I, I like I said I think Munster still deserved the win they played well enough they defended really really well and they took their chances when they did um, and given their season they've had to play their last number of games away from home and they've really really improved so much since last season so you know I've only really watched them properly for two years since since the URC started properly and they've probably been the most improved team over these two years so fully deserved and um, yeah all credit to them. And I think in most improved even just during the season I mean I remember halfway through they were sitting way towards the bottom of the table yeah for sure and kind of pulled themselves back up really well um, so no I mean credit to them I think yeah I felt that I mean that first half they were very dominant. I think they were unlucky to only go in a couple of points ahead at the break. Well, I can't even remember. Did the Stormers go in ahead at the break? But you know, the Stormers weren't playing nearly to the kind of potential they should have been. And I think, you know, Munster had a couple of tries rubbed out. They were you know, unlucky. Um, you know, that they just only could. They didn't get that much scoreboard reward, um, which probably talks to you that well for the Stormers' defense. But you know, they, they, were, they felt that they were always more in control of the game. Um, but it also kind of felt like the Stormers were it was an inevitability that they were just going to win um, so the fact that you know in the, when Munster scored in the last couple of minutes and took the lead I mean even then it was still a dramatic finish because the Stormers were still like on the try line pushing for the win right at the end so it was, yeah. I mean as finals go it was an exciting one yeah I mean the, they had a really good chance when I think it was Crowley got the yellow card with like two or three minutes to go so they had the ball in, the, in Munster's half with a man um, advantage. So that was another good opportunity to push for the win. But obviously, at that point, it also means one mistake means it's the end of the game, and that's what happened. Yeah, and you know, I think there were a couple of moments that just didn't the Stormers didn't play as well as they could have. I think some of their, their bigger players had quieter games and all this sort of a little bit of criticism thrown at Lubbock, um, not just for his missed kicks, but also just some, some poor option taking occasionally. What's your kind of take on that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously he had his he had the intercept right at the beginning of the match to, you know, start the game off really well, even though we you know an intercept is against the runner player very much, but um he I don't know he is one of those players where you know you're not going to have the same sort of consistency that you get with like a first our first choice like Pollard. Um but when he's on fire, he's really on fire and it wasn't his game to really you know, impose himself as much as we've seen on Saturday. So, unfortunate. I don't think he was, you know, the like the only player who didn't put his hand up, and he's definitely, you know, not. You can't just fault him on his own. Other big name players for the Stormers also weren't as um, prominent as they've been throughout the season. Even like Bilimsa Daimani came off early. I think he had a bit of an injury, but he didn't really. Um, show off too much of his skill that we know he has so yeah it was a tough one for the Stormers and I think some of it was perhaps they could have also just played a bit smarter from like a from a strategy perspective as well yeah I was gonna say I mean how much of that you know the guys you're kind of mentioning are all maybe more flair players than kind of trench warfare players yeah guys like Diomani and Lebox I mean do you think you know, they're just not quite suited for finals rugby, or do you think it was more that Munster just put the, you know, executed their plan really well to negate um, some of the Stormers' strengths? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, it's like it sounds harsh on any player if you're if you sort of say they're not suited for 
um, finals rugby. But I, I, I know what you mean. And in those tighter games where sometimes you just have to play a bit smarter, like you can't, especially if the pitch is like, um, happen, if, if the pitch is cutting up as much as it did, I think it makes it harder to for the Stormers to play their perfect game. So, yeah, I, I, I think I would say, to be honest, that Lebok is not the ideal player that you want to know in like a massive final at fly half, unless your team is really dominating and you can see that he's on his game, which he, he wasn't. So I think that's fair. I mean, even someone like Evan Russ, I guess, like he had his yellow card and, and it was, yeah, it was coming, I guess. It was the team, someone was going to get a yellow card. But he's also one of those players where even though he's so powerful and He's, you know, give him the ball, he's always going to make a few meters. I think sometimes in the bigger, tighter games, his impact is a bit negated. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's I suppose it's a pertinent question with, you know, the box squad being announced uh, after the game. A lot of speculation um, around who's actually obviously going to make the World Cup and um, very relevant things like, is Lebok or is Evan Rose the kind of guy you want to bring up in a World Cup final off the bench? Um, yeah. yeah, and it's like, especially if you think of it as a plan B rather than just more of the same. I mean, that's that's a tough one to consider. Uh, you know, the Springboks in the, at the last World Cup, they were good enough that you wanted the bomb squad to come on and just make their presence known. And the backs, you, you know, we'd use two to cover, so you wouldn't even have... Elton Yankees at the time was the backup fly half who would be more of a plan B option but the Springboks were confident I think enough to go with the sort of safer options off the bench rather than change it up we need to you know score five tries because if you're confident enough that your your starting 15 is going to do well enough then you have the safer options so I don't know if the that sort of thinking is still the same especially with a 6-2 split and having I mean, Francois Stein, in all likelihood, is probably not going to be an option. Um, but you've got David Willemsay, who can you know, fill that exactly. role almost perfectly. Exactly. exactly. And considering that he, I mean, I guess he is a fly half, as a fly half option, he's, um, I would say, a more threatening and threatening and exciting fly half option than Pollard. If you are chasing the game, it's also a pretty good option to have to be able to bring on Willemse or Pollard or to mix it up in a different way and, and change the the sort of system of attack. I mean, is that suggesting you think that um, Pollard's, um, Willemse is going to be on the bench rather well, than <laughs> starting ahead of Billy? That's a tough one. I mean, this is, I think, at the end of the last international season, it was one of our big questions. Given that Vili had played his way back into sort of form, I think, at the beginning of the season, we were saying he's starting to be phased out and that was the right thing. And Vilimsa had put his hand up at fullback and that looked like the way things were going. But then throughout the season, Vili showed his um, importance, I think, when he either came off the bench or when he did start. So, um, And we saw Vilimsa stand up as a 12 option. Um but whenever Willemsa played, he played really well as a starting player. So it's definitely uh, it's definitely one of the very big questions going into the World Cup. And we do have a few matches now in the Rugby Championship to to see what they're maybe thinking or for them to 
them being the Springbok coaches to you know try some things which they're thinking about talking into the World Cup. Yeah, I think that's something we'll probably save that as a full topic for the next um, the next pod. We can do a bit of a preview of the international season, what we're expecting out of the box, um, yeah. what we want to see from them before we actually get to the World Cup, and we'll, we'll probably have a clear idea of squads uh, there. It is interesting to note that you know, just meant because you mentioned that Elton Yankees didn't make this cut. Um, you know, his his French duties have wrapped up, um, and so his. his Lack of suggestion, his lack of selection might suggest that he's kind of fallen out of favour. Uh, you know, and I think with options like Lebok locally, it's probably not. You know, it's not that surprising if that is the case. Uh, but yeah, it would be one of the, the first instances of the box like really kind of going away from someone they've trusted for, for a number of years. And yeah. you know, Rusty's been very loyal in his squad. Um, the selection so it's interesting yeah i mean i think like elton the biggest thing he has going for him is like that um experience he's a world cup winning squad member he's obviously knows the systems and all of that but i mean playing in the french second division play uh, personal issues and you know just the even the way the south african public perhaps is is perceiving him at the moment because of whatever news stories, whether they may be, you know, factual or not. It all has an impact, and especially given Lebok's form, given, like we said, Willemse, when he has played, even though it hasn't been much at 10, he, he hasn't let the box down. It is, um, and he he was listed as a fly half. It does certainly look like uh, Elton is on the way out or not part of the thinking for the World Cup and obviously Pollard is first choice and he seems to have gotten a little bit back in the group mostly staying injury free for Leicester in England so that's pretty exciting for the Springboks yeah and I mean he's just been I mean, by all accounts playing amazingly well for Leicester so sure. there's I don't think there's any doubt that Pollard is the first choice and I don't think he's ever done I don't think he's done anything wrong to, to lose that spot um, yeah so, yeah. Um, but yeah, just to wrap up the, the URC season, um, you know, is losing finals, is being the losing finalist after winning the previous year, is that a failure for the Stormers? I mean, is it still a success for the year? How would you kind of wrap up the, the season? I think that um, sort of looking at it as a, as a season, like uh, as the season as a whole, it's still pretty successful. I think right now it's disappointing because you've just lost a home final. You were the favorites. You had such an opportunity to win. And because of that, it feels really, really disappointing. Um, Obviously, as reigning champions, there's always some sort of expectation. And once again, Leinster lost. Last year it was to the Bulls. This year it was to Munster um, before they made their own final. And that gave the Stormers another home advantage. But... um, yeah, if, if you if you said to the, I think, the Stormers coaching staff at the beginning of the season, um, would you take second place? I think they, obviously, if they're, with their ambition, they would want to play for first place. But ultimately, second place is a pretty good achievement. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, mean, I, think, I think if you'd offer them second place, even a month or two ago, they would have said happily. Um, and then I think it's just that expectation and maybe this is all kind of came home to roost. You know, there's videos after the 
love the Munster beat Leinster, you know, people cheering the change rooms and stuff. It all but maybe, I mean, I don't want to suggest it, but like, you know, maybe there's some arrogance and at least in the fan base that like, cool, it's now, you know, now it's the Stormers to lose, which it was, but because yeah. Munster had to travel and stuff, but like, um, you know, that I think that, that expectation of like, well, now we have to win this. It was quite a late in the season development. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, Munster had been traveling really well. They beat the Stormers, I think it was the second or third last game of the um, playoff table before they went to Durban. Um, so they had that experience of winning in Cape Town. They were the only team in the last 21 games, I think it was, to have won there. Um, before that, it was the Lions, actually. <laughs> um, and obviously, uh, yeah, I think Munster also lost to the Lions this season. So you know, maybe the Lions are the true champions if we're doing a transitive system. <laughs> I mean, the the, the Lions, the, sorry, the Moonstar, the only team the Stormers haven't beaten in URC. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So I guess, and I, I saw someone saying something about it, but it's it's also cool to like create these rivalries. You know, we're only in year two of this competition, so having this sort of Stormers. Munster Stormers also have a little one with Ulster like they had a couple of really niggly games um, at the end of last year so it's cool it's cool to develop these rivalries it helps the URC grow it sort of builds um, it builds a little bit upon the tournament itself by having more interest I think building within the teams but also from like for the fans to be able to enjoy yeah look I mean it certainly didn't take long for everyone to to just hate the hate Leinster <laughs> like that, yeah. that narrative, narrative really developed quickly. Yeah, it's easy to hate the if they're just that good and also not willing to play their best players as often as they should. Then yeah, like you say, it's super easy. Yeah, I mean that's like just given how stacked that squad is, the fact that they came away a second season with no no trophies. Yeah, really not good for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they really do. They've got, you know, like almost 30 internationals. So even if they're resting players, and that's why even for Munster, I think everyone's going to say, oh, they only beat like a B team. But it was a super strong Leinster team that they managed to win. So again, just um, they did so much to get to a position where they had a chance to win. And then they took that final opportunity. So they definitely deserve it. It's not like they uh, had an easy or they didn't. It's not like... The Stormers either played super badly or they, you know, they, they had to do a lot to win and they are the, the deserving champions. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone's arguing to take anything away from Munster, at least what I've heard. Like, they sure. yeah, fully, fully just earned their, um, their victories. Well, they earned the championship. So, yeah, I mean, look, it's... And they, they're quite a cool team. Like, I, I think they've got a good vibe around them. I don't think there's too much animosity towards them in general. So, you know, I think if there was going to be a... A different winner. Um, I don't mind it being being them. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, just on the last point, we like we said, they've improved so much because last year they were still under Johan van Kran and they were not the greatest team to watch. But this year, as they've grown and as they've gotten better, they are also one of the like more exciting teams to watch. They have a lot of the good young Irish players. They have. Um, Craig Casey, Jack Crowley as a halfbacks. They've got someone like Gavin Coombs, who I don't know if he'll ever be like a a great um, internet, like as good as he is at international level as he's been at URC level. I don't know if that will translate, but they've got some players who, yeah, who are just really fun to watch. And I think that's cool too. Yeah. No, I think it's, it, it does just put a really nice, I said, not so much a restorers fan, but they're definitely nice narratives 
developing this competition. And I think anyone that um, thinks of competition is going to be dead in a couple of years. And yeah, has been rightly yes. <laughs> told that they're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't sell 55,000 tickets in three hours for a yeah. competition that's on its death, death door. So, yeah. Um, yeah, no, very cool all around. Um, I think that just about wraps up our, I mean, our coverage. I don't think we need to talk about the Bulls or uh, Sharks seasons too much. Uh, you know, obviously, both went out in the quarters. Um, I think the Sharks probably, actually, I think both teams are probably quite disappointed. I mean, the Bulls obviously were the finals last year. Sharks have got a super, super stacked squad. Um, both probably coming a bit short of expectations, um, particularly the Sharks who are now not even Champions Cup next year. Um, but yeah, it, it is what it is. Um, and now at least maybe we've got an extra chance at silverware for the Sharks because they can um, play for that Challenge Cup, which is potentially a little bit easier. Yep, that's true. And uh, I think we discussed it a bit last uh, last time about how how disappointing it has been for the Sharks. I mean, they were not too far from missing the playoffs, and that would have been like their minimum expectation. Um, but yeah, they 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 obviously lost in the quarterfinals, so a lot to work on for next year. Um, they man the balls yeah. and and the Lions too. So. We'll see. It should be interesting to see what happens between now and October, I think, when the season starts again. Look, I mean, the one big thing that they have done since the last part, and I think we I mean, we did speculate on it, but it's now been confirmed. And, and personally, I think that will be a, a world of change, is they've locked in um, uh, John, John Plumtree as coach. Right. Like, yeah. I think having a proper, you know, world-class coach, um, right, the one that's coached with the Irish international team, coached with, um, I think he's been involved in Japan. He's coached, head coach the, the Hurricanes. Yeah. Uh, he's and New Zealand. He was an assistant coach for New Zealand too. Yeah. Uh, so all around, I think you know he's going to make a big difference to the Sharks. He also knows the Sharks system. He knows the culture. Like, I think he's a he's a good person for them to have on board. Um, yeah. So really optimistic that he'll will be able to bring some steer and direction. I agree. I think it's good, definitely a good pickup by the Sharks, and they've done it early enough that he has time before the season starts to, you know, put his uh, stamp on the on the squad or the systems and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, cool. But then let's pivot on to the Champions Cup quite quickly. Um, there was yeah a very dramatic game once again in the final. We did mention that Leinster did lose. Uh, they played La Rochelle, a repeat of last year's final, and yeah, similarly, last minute, tense match. Um, uh, the final score was, I think, one point in it, 27-26. Um, yeah, Leinster on the try line got a red card against them for a dangerous clean-out. So, yeah, did you, I mean, what was your takeaway from that game? It, it, was, it was a really strange game, I think, um, because Leinster raced out into a lead. They, I think they scored... Two, there was some ridiculous stat like the two of the three quickest tries ever in like uh, European finals or something. So it was 14 or I think it was 12 nil within like five minutes. And then I think in the second half, it was just completely dominated by La Rochelle. Um, there was also another stat about the number of passes between the Leinster backs in the second half. And it was minuscule like all single digits they just were starved of the ball like the whole 
half. They just had no opportunity at all until right at the end, like you say, when they had their chance and then Ala Alatoa got a record. So very interesting game just because I think it's part of the uh, you know Lens's game plan to come out of the blocks firing as fast as they can, but then not being able to sustain that level of dominance um, obviously for the 80 minutes and let La Rochelle back in. Um, and yeah, just to, like you said, to, for Leinster to not win any trophy is a failure of a season for them. Like, you can't put it any other way. Yeah, I mean, they're going to be hardly disappointed. I think a lot of people took probably a bit too much pleasure out of that loss. Uh, but you know, when you've got a side that stacked and you kind of just walk the URC, I mean, they went undefeated apart from when they sent their teenagers to the Bulls and obviously got a hiding. But, you know, they, they never really looked in danger of losing a game until they lost the two games that actually mattered, um, which is, you know, kind of means that the rest of it's a bit all for naught. So, yeah. yeah, one wonders and the, uh, one wonders what's going to happen with Jacques Nienaber joining them next year. Maybe that's the final piece of the puzzle that'll change them around. I don't know. But do you think, you know, given so many of the Leinster players come from that, um, sorry, the Irish players come from that Leinster system, you know, now having four failures and knockout games in a row, do you think that's going to kind of play on their mentality for the World Cup? You know, the Ireland make a quarterfinal. What's the chances of them feeling a bit fragile, a bit like, shit, we've never done this before and we can't even win our domestic? Like, yeah, what I do you think, think an Irish setup there is a different breed? I, I, I think it has to have some sort of impact, you know, um, even if it's way back in their minds or subconscious, like not being able to pull through in these big knockout games. Um, and Ireland, you know, the Six Nations is one thing, and obviously it's a really tough competition, and they've done magnificently well to, I think, win the Grand Slam this year. But um, there's nothing quite like a proper knockout match, which you don't really get in the Six Nations. And we know from World Cup experience that Ireland don't fare too well in those either. So... Um, I mean, well, it's not easy. just one knockout match, three knockout matches. Yeah, for sure, exactly. So uh, we've seen them drop out at the quarterfinals so often. Um, you know, it's become a bit of a meme almost. But uh, it's going to be tough for them. We know if even if they come first, but you know, first or second in their group, they're going to have a really, really tough quarterfinal. And then, like you say, it could be a similar situation for so many of these players where. They have a massive match, knockout rugby, and they just can't quite pull through. Or maybe they'll be able to turn it around. But um, I think it will definitely weigh um, on their minds a little. And it's up to them and their coaches to whether they can turn that into like a positive experience or impact or not. And it's going to be tough. Like For anyone, it would be tough. And do you think... Um, like? You've also kind of seen a blueprint of how to beat them, maybe, like with um, forward, big, smashy teams. You know, La Rochelle yeah. doing it twice in a row now. Like, that's who they're going to be playing in the, the pool stages and then in the, um, with us, and then also in the potentially a semi final against France, quarter final against France. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we've, when we've spoken about Ireland and their you know, relative strengths. When they come against the Springboks, we like that sort of um, big pack and not being able to dominate at the forwards as much as like when they do play England and Wales and some of the other Six Nations teams. 
it's not as much of a comparative strength. So, yeah, of course, Ireland have the tools to be able to beat whether it's France or South Africa, but it, it, they, it's a bit more difficult for them because one of their strengths is not as, you know, comparatively strong. So... I think it's going to be tough. Like I, it's it's it is a bit of a joke, but I still could easily see them getting knocked out in another quarterfinal, despite them being one of the favorites going into the tournament. Um, it could go, it could easily go either way. They could go on to win the whole tournament, or they could easily go out in the quarterfinals. And even though that sounds a bit weird to say, it's yeah, it's a possibility. I mean, I think in all fairness, that does apply to all four of the top four. You know, I don't think yeah, it's a very it's, you know we everyone's spoken about the draw enough times, but like the fact is that. Two of France and Africa, Australia, two surfs, France and Africa, Ireland, yeah. New Zealand are not making the quarter for the, the semifinals. And, exactly. you know, any four of those could also win the whole thing. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it is really a, a strange um, tournament. Yeah. Yeah, and, off, so. and, and because of that, you have to think that whichever two teams don't make it, it's going to be a complete failure for them, and coaches will be at risk of being sacked. I mean, if New Zealand get, lose in the quarterfinals, it's going to be a national disaster. If um, you know, if South Africa lose in the quarterfinals, the last time we did that was 2011. Uh, yeah, and that wasn't great. So <laughs> let's hope that doesn't happen again. Yeah. No. <laughs> so like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's probably where, you know, the teams with success of, of tight matches and that history will, will come through. And that's maybe just one of those factors that counts against Ireland. Um, yeah. I think they've done really well in the last couple of years to kind of prove that they can win crunch matches. Yeah. But, you know, they, they lost to France in France last year. And the Six Nations, the game that mattered. They won the Six Nations this year, but, you know, we mentioned all the tough games were at home and France weren't prioritizing the Six Nations to the way they have in previous years potentially so yeah I um, agree yeah. Uh, but um, yeah saying all of that I think we again it shouldn't not that anyone has been but we shouldn't take away from what an accomplishment it is for La Rochelle not just winning this time but making it back to back um, you know European Champions Cup trophies and especially for Ronan Agara and from a South African perspective really cool for Raymond Rule and Dylan Lades to win that trophy two seasons in a row um, as essentially as to you know uh, South African sort of not necessarily cost offs, but you know they 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 I didn't think that's exactly what they are. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah. Uh, when they left, they yeah they were struggling to make the Springboks. So yeah. Maybe that is what they are, but they've really gone and made, you know, they're, they're going to be heroes for La Rochelle for the rest of time. I'm sure this is like their greatest team of all time. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty awesome for them. Yeah, no, and no, I, I think it's great. You know, I think those players, you know, both potentially, I think they both got a lot more vitriol thrown their way just because of the era that they made their debuts in. Um, you know, whether and that's not their fault, you know, you, but the fact that they've now found success in another environment um, and getting that recognition, I think, is you know, great for them, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think for Renan Agara, coaching 
being that successful as a coach in a foreign country is also something pretty cool. And he has experience with the Crusaders and some success there. So we'll, it will be interesting to see if he can keep pushing on and whether he'll be interested in an international job, whether it's as a future island head coach or, or what's on the trajectory for him as well. All right, and we're back. Um, we've had a couple, multiple technological impacts there. Um, my phone disconnected, and then we forgot to press record for the second half of this episode. So we're going to do a speed run. Um, quick topics. Colby's leaving Toulon. Thoughts, Phil? Yeah, it's... Uh... It's not too unexpected. He hasn't quite been as settled as he was at Toulouse before, and we don't expect him to come back to South Africa. Looks like he's heading to Japan uh, and going to have a lot of fun, a lot less stress on the body, and making some good money. So good for him. I agree. Um, we did then pivoted into talking about um, Sneeman and how... Colby might be able to be as effective in Japan as Kit Sneeman one was. Yeah, so obviously different uh, part, different um, sides of the spectrum on the size scale, but uh, given that Colby will be more, um, sim- he'll have less of a physical disadvantage in Japan, we expect him to rip it up and we can't wait to see videos, um, whether it's on YouTube or Twitter or whatever, showing his explosive skill. Yeah, but it was it was really nice to see in the URC final Snaman being back to close to his best. I mean, it was just a very dominant, noticeable presence on the field. Um, and I think having kind of that hard man back in the box setup is going to be really, really important for us. It's something that we've really lacked in the last couple of years with him not being available. Um, really, that that hard impact of the bench. You know, we've got grafters, but we don't have anyone that's just. A, the same kind of physical presence as Etzebeth is. So having him back in the Springbok setup will be will be really good. Um, quick Curry Cup roundup? Yeah, so we spoke about how the Sharks have been really impressive, especially in utilizing their squad, um, mixing up some youngsters with some more journeyman type of players. So they're sitting pretty on top of the log. The Cheetahs and the Pumas are also doing really well. And then it looks like the last semi-final spot is up for grabs between Western Province, Bulls, Lions, and Griquas in the next two weeks. So it should be really interesting to see what happens there. But uh, we uh, mentioned Joey Mangalo doing a really good job for the Sharks and how he was given the Curry Cup reins, and he's really making good use of it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a Bias Sharks fan, it's great to see them on top of the table. Hopefully, they can actually do something productive with this, as opposed to you know, the URC and, and Champions Cup campaigns where it all kind of was you know, a bit falling apart and lackluster. So, yeah, we can we can be hopeful um, that this is the start of something good. Um, uh, there was also the Barbarians versus World 15 game. Um, Controversial for Laos side. It was a great game out. Um, looked like a lot of really fun running rugby. And I think it's it's one of those weird games where the kind of the ref like has license to let things go a little bit. Um, but you know, for all accounts, it was a really fun fun game to watch. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think there was. I think it was Stefan Lavis had a try, which they just didn't bother showing replays of, which looked like he knocked on, but they were just happy to let it go. Um, and yeah, like you said, lots of exciting players, lots of good tries, and in the end, we saw Alan Wynne Jones fail to kick a conversion twice, so he didn't quite get the golden send off that you know he would have hoped. Yeah, it definitely also leaves um, George Cruz's like legacy quite nicely intact as a, a back healing lock kicker. Yeah. Um, I think what, what we did touch on coming out of that game though was the um, the difference that like these players are going to bring t- such as um, Pietau and Falau, uh, Simani Valu, Lutua to their like um, clubs and their, their, their home nations. Obviously all of them are moving back now um, to play for their, their original island nations. So it'll be very interesting to see how that unfolds at the World Cup with these teams suddenly being a lot more experienced now that they've got a whole bunch of like um, New Zealand players playing for them. Yeah, exactly. And um, specifically Tonga being in the same group as the Springboks, Ireland and Scotland, it will there will be a big focus for us and for all South African fans, but also the other teams going into the World Cup. And, and yeah, it will be really interesting to play against Falao, Pietau and others who have moved over. Yeah, I mean, hopefully they, they if they are going to pull a shock, it's not against us. We've already had enough of a scare from Tonga in a World Cup before, so it's only fair it's someone else's problem now. Yeah. Um, what else was on our list? I feel like yeah, we've, been, we've flown through, but it's a pretty solid five-minute wrap so far. Do you want to chat yeah. about Super Rugby? Sure. Uh, I mean, just before we get there, we also just mentioned Eddie Jones getting one over on Steve Hansen. Um, and that's good for him, but, you know, not, uh, <laughs> he's also not, not, not universally loved, but we just mentioned perhaps slightly above Hansen at the moment just because of certain comments and behavior that has, been, that has happened. Um, in Super Rugby, so... The Chiefs are still looking good on top of the log. Um, they did have that hiccup against the Reds, but apart from that... Yeah, they did. And so on their tail, with the one pool game left, are the likes of the Crusaders, the Blues, and the Brumbies in, uh, in the top four. And then the Hurricanes and Moratars have also qualified for the playoffs already, and then the last two spots are quite open. It's actually quite a log jam, all the way from the Reds down to the Rebels, with only... Uh, Moana Pacifica out of the reckoning. So it should be a pretty um, interesting finish uh, with, like I said, five teams um, jostling for those last two places. But uh, it, it, other than that game that you mentioned, it really has been the Chiefs um, setting the bar. It's quite a weird one because, I mean, you know, it's obviously only 12 teams in the log. And now Eight. so many oh, of them make yeah. the playoffs. Yes, yeah. so, you know, so it's, but at the same time, if you don't have relegation... Um, it really does keep kind of everyone's excitement and, and you know, there's only one team with two rounds, one round to go that's actually out of the playoffs. Um, yeah. so, you know, it does add an element of like sustained engagement with the competition, which I think you can respect. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think any of the teams who don't make it are going to be really disappointed. Um, if the Drua, which, you know, the Drua need quite a lot to be able to go through. They need, they're relying on other teams now. But given that they've beaten the Crusaders and the Hurricanes at home, you know, you'd expect them to be able to finish in the top eight. But given that those are their two best results and other than that, they haven't done particularly well. Um, 
yeah, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, especially uh, Reds and Highlanders are currently 7th and 8th, but it will be a massive um, disappointment of a season if either of those don't qualify. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think we'd all love the, the Drua to do it. I mean, they're playing a Waratahs at home, so they've got a good shot of, of controlling what they can control, but yeah, unfortunately, there's, it's, there's stuff outside their control as well that needs to go right. Yeah, and maybe just a quick mention before we finish. Um, our draft is into its final week, so Andrew, who is obviously off sick, as we mentioned, he has managed to make his way into the final where he'll be battling against um, one of the OG pod pod members, Adam. And on the other side of the uh, spectrum, what's happening with you, Ant? Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of, you know, I've blocked it out. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what you're talking about. So Ant, Ant is uh, battling Matt for ownership of our Wooden Spoon Trophy, which uh, Matt is the reigning champion of. So <laughs> we'll see if you manage he's to... Got some, he's got some experience there. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll see but, if you manage to snatch it away from him or not. Yeah, the thing is, there's actually quite a lot of pressure riding on this because obviously Andrew's holding the Wooden Spoon for URC. So really, we can't really sit in a position where two out of three pod members are both holding... Um, <laughs> Wooden spoons. It wouldn't really go well for the brand, but yeah, you know. So, so I'm trying. Going to try my best. I mean, Matt's. I think Matt's not against taking it again. I think he he would quite like that as a, as a fun little <laughs> anecdote. So, I'm really hoping to try and play that card that he misses. Lean into his matisms and and not take it seriously this week. Yeah. Does that does that mean? I mean, I, I was. I think it might be a given, but does that mean we're supporting Andrew against Adam in the final? As a, oh, as a oh, 100%. Well, Adam's already won a title this year. He doesn't need another one. That's true. His head is already quite big, so we don't need it to get even bigger. Well, the best part is he's not going to ever listen to this pod, so we can you know, slag him <laughs> off as much as we want. Yeah, and even if he did, we would we would carry on slagging him uh, We would still stand by our copies. <laughs> exactly. Um, cool, but I think, yeah, we've done a, a good little speed run to catch up. Um, sorry you did miss the golden content, but uh, that's how the cookie crumbles sometimes. It was inevitable. Um, I don't think you can call yourself a proper podcast until you've not recorded an episode or forgot to record an episode. So I think that that's probably us being official, finally. Yeah, and it's been good. Thanks for listening. Cool. Cheers. Cool. Okay. I